Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Everyone, welcome to another uh, Stem Cells at Lunch. Uh, with us today we have Dr. Alison Bardin and she did her PhD in MIT studying the mitotic exit of the cell cycle in budding yeast. She then continued uh, as a postdoc uh, in Paris and focusing on the role of the birded family of proteins in not signaling as negative regulators of the E3 ubiquitin ligase. And she further worked on investigating the mechanisms controlling the fate and differentiation potential of adult stem cells in Drosophila and Kanstein. She's now the group leader of stem cell and tissue homeostasis team in the Department of Developmental Biology and Cancer at the Institute of Curie. And her team studies regulatory mechanisms controlling adult stem cells. And using genetic and genomic approaches, they aim to identify the mechanisms regulating stem cell lineage specification and determine how aging and environmental insults impact this process through alteration of the stem cell genome. So thank you for uh, being with us. Thank you for having me. We're very lucky to have you share your stories with us. Thank you. I think I will just kick off the conversation by asking you how did you how did your interest started about the stem cells and what you found interesting and how did you start yeah so good question and uh, you know i think it actually started a very long time ago for me back when i was a phd student and as you said i was not working on stem cells i was working on budding yeast and i think there i developed this profound interest in understanding asymmetric cell division uh, with the basic question of how daughter cells acquire different fates than their mother cells. And at the time, uh, I was reading some of the, the older literature in the yeast field, and there's actually a really fascinating series of papers about how yeast do this and how the daughter cells of yeast are actually, you know, take on it and a new fate from their mother cells through mating type switching. And there were some beautiful studies that had, were earlier that showed how an asymmetric transcription factor called ASH1 becomes localized specifically to the daughter cell. So I think, you know, those papers really captured my imagination in terms of trying to understand this process by which a daughter cell actually is different from the mother cell. And I think, you know, there's many examples of, of you know, non-mammalian and non-fly cells that do this, including work from yeast and bacteria. So that's where this sort of notion, you know, where I became interested in this idea. And then from there, I went to do a postdoc really continuing this idea of how daughter cells uh, are different from their mothers, uh, working on cell fate acquisition in the peripheral nervous system in the fly. And there I worked on proteins that regulated notch signaling, but the basic idea was trying to understand how notch signaling was involved in this asymmetric cell fate that would happen after the cell division. And then around at the end of 2005, uh, there were these two papers that came out in Drosophila that demonstrated the existence of stem cells in the adult intestine. So this was, was work from Norbert Perriman's group from Craig Michele and Benelstein in Alan Spradling's lab. These, I think, were really uh, amazing papers because they showed for the first time that, that the adult fly had somatic stem cells. It was clear before that that there were somatic stem cells present rounding the germlines. But outside of that, we didn't know anything about thematic stem cells. I thought this was a really interesting model system. And it also had some of the same types of cell fate decisions that I'd been studying in the peripheral nervous system in terms of regulation of notch pathway that were clearly important. Um, and at that point, I decided that this would be a great system to, to try to understand cell fate acquisition and stem cell biology. So that's sort of how my interests developed. 
do you think you can explain to the public usually because they don't really understand why we use animals as models? Why do you think that it's a good model to use Drosophila, for example? There's a, a number of, of uh, answers to that question. First of all, I should say that flies and humans are actually not so different in terms of the genes, especially when it comes to the disease genes. So I think the conservation of genes is, you know, is really strong and arguing that flies can be a very good model to understand how these genes work. Um, another really important aspect, I think, is the sort of lack of redundancy of genes in Drosophila. So instead of having many paralogs in a given family of genes, Drosophila tends to have a single gene. So this means that when one wants to do genetic screening to uncover how a pathway works, uh, you only need to inactivate one gene to inactivate the pathway. So that's why in Drosophila, actually, many of the of core developmental signaling pathways have really been dissected and initially described in the fruit fly uh, because of this lack of redundancy. To go with that, there's also just a, a huge wealth of, of genetic tools that are available in the fly that I think really don't exist in other models. So we can do very precise uh, cell-specific, tissue-specific gene inactivation overexpression. And this can be done in mouse to some extent. It's trickier and it's certainly more expensive. So I think cost-effectiveness is another good argument in terms of thinking of public funding. I think it's important to you know have model systems that are not so costly as mouse, for example, but still in vivo. So uh, there's other types of, of models such as, as organoids that are, you know, of course, extremely useful, but it's not an in vivo system. Yeah, exactly. Mostly it's cost effective, which is really important. And you mentioned a lot about the technologies and with that, the research has changed with just the enhancement of the single cell technologies, heifer with screening and all the imaging now that is taking place. Do you think it has been enhanced and how do you think it's going to be in the future? Yeah, so I think it's an exciting time to be doing biology and developmental biology. Um, I think the primary use in my lab of some of the emerging technologies have really been with the genome sequencing technologies in terms of Illumina sequencing and Oxford Nanopore long read sequencing. And with that, I think for the first time, we've been able to really get a window into what's happening in somatic cells in terms of how their genome is diverging. And this at a, at a very early stage in the development of something that would be similar to a tumor. We have haven't really forayed yet into single cell sequencing. I think this is very powerful. I think you have to make sure that you have a good question to ask with this approach. And I think bulk sequencing can also be used in, in many cases, but we'll see. I think more and more the field is going towards single cell sequencing, but bulk sequencing is, oh, can be very useful. Yeah, exactly that. And you said before how you use Drosophila because especially you have the conservation of the gene, same as in humans, and that's why it's important. But do you think, how is that translated? And how much do you think our research in general is translated into personalized medicine? That's a good question. And I think it's important to think about translational research. I guess I should be very clear to say that we do not do translational research. So I think this is really critical. I also think that fundamental research is also really important. So in my lab, we try to understand really the basic principles that underlie stem cells and not necessarily discussing with clinicians about how this will be directly applied. I mean, there will be people that will come after us that will make that jump. But clearly, it's important to understand you know, how the system works before trying to apply it to humans. And I think, you know, one of the contemporary examples of that is really the development of CRISPR technologies that really grew out of basic fundamental research in bacteria that now has obviously, you know, applications all throughout biology. But 
Fundamental research is, I think, still extremely important. Not everything is translational. Yes, because you do fundamental research, I'm pretty sure across your years, you had a lot of fascinating things happening in your career. Could you just name one and what motivated you maybe? Let's see, one fascinating thing. Well, I'm excited about just everyday findings that they have. But I think something that gets me thinking a lot are those types of observations that we have that we actually can't explain. So like a really strange result. Sometimes this is simply they forgot to add the buffer or something, you know, that will not repeat. But those strange results that repeat, I think this can be really important to dig a bit further to try to understand what's behind that. So one of the examples for this was when we started to have these observations that there were sort of spontaneous tumors that develop in fly. And I think before that, you know, nobody really thought that the fly lived long enough to have actually genetically driven spontaneous tumors arise. So we saw these growth and we thought, well, it could be genetic, it could be something else, it could be environmental. And it took several years of, you know, lots of experiments for us to really establish that this was indeed genetic. And this was in, in fact due to spontaneous mutation, much like happens in, you know, the initiation of human cancers. So to me, that was one of those examples of an observation that we had that was a bit weird and that then led us to think what might be behind that. And we've had, you know, several of those and some of the work I presented also came out of, of that type of thinking where we had an observation we couldn't explain. Why is that? So I, I like those types of observations. Sometimes it can be frustrating and take a long time to understand what's going on. But for me, sometimes that's the most rewarding type of, of experiment, the one that gives a different result than you were expecting. Yeah, which is always the case, I would say, 99% of the time. It's all about the discovery that accidentally you will make and not the actual answer that you will find. <laughs> you did talk a lot about that you were thinking also if it's genetic or environmental. And I know that you also are looking in a bit of epigenetic magazine and chromatin modeling. How would you explain epigenetics to a lay audience? And what do you think it's important to have a look? I know it's very complicated to explain it. <laughs> well, I mean, again, I think this goes back to, you know, this initial interest that I had as a PhD student, which is how cells acquire new fates. And these are really driven by transcriptional changes. And usually epigenetics would be more sort of how these transcriptional changes are maintained. What are the mechanisms which are usually driven by transcription factors. And then secondarily, you have modifications of histones and other types of alterations to the chromatin, but how can you establish this new dynamic in a cell? So keeping the, the fate of the cell as well as for differentiated cells, for example, expressing all of the genes that they need to express to carry out their function within adult tissue. So it's really critical to understand these processes. And, and some of the recent studies have shown that, you know, when, as the uh, lineage develops, if this is not established, if, for example, self-renewal properties of the stem cell are not being turned off during differentiation, then cells can aberrantly reacquire this self-renewal capacity and become deregulated in terms of growth. So this can lead to uh, misregulation that can drive cancer, for example. So I think it's important to understand both within the context of a normal lineage, but also to understand and how is self-renewal turned off and how might this be misregulated during a pathology? And it comes back to the complexity of our human. Um, and then your work has a lot about to do about understanding the adult tissue and how they are dysregulated with aging and cancer. 
do you think how do you think it's gonna the research is gonna change in maybe 10 years time or what would you hope to say how will research in general change in 10 years time is that what you're say your research research <laughs> oh that's i think that's difficult to to see i mean i hope you know we have many projects that are pursuing trying to understand somatic mutation something i'm very interested in is trying to understand how tissues might eliminate these cells how there may be discussion between tissues for example or within a tissue how non-autonomously this might be regulated i think one area where the fly intestine field has been particularly interesting in the last few years is really i mean this is not work from my lab but work from many groups showing that there's a lot of communication between organs in the adults and this is something that's actually very difficult i think to address in in other types of models so there's I think that's something, an area that we'll also go into to try to understand how there might be crosstalk between different tissues and different organs. And again, you know, having these genetic drivers where we can specifically inactivate a gene in the brain, for example, and, and ask, you know, how, what impact does this have in the gut? Uh, this is really an, an important tool to, to have. So I think that's an interesting area of research. That's very interesting, of course. Um, and how important do you think is collaboration in our field across different disciplines? And because especially now with the technologies, usually you need bioinformaticians. Yeah, no, I think collaboration is, is really important. And as you said, moving into new areas, this can be really important. However, I also do think that sometimes importing certain technologies and certain expertise into the lab is also really critical in my team. Having the bioinformatic expertise in the lab actually made a big difference. So sometimes just being able to discuss, you know, multiple times per day basis also really advances science. So I think it's it's important to know when it when you need to collaborate outside of the lab and when you need to import a technology or expertise into the lab. Yeah, it's very important. And with that, that you said a lot of in-house as well, that it's important. What are things that you say to your students and how are you trying to motivate them? How do I motivate? Well, I think, think it's important that people are intrinsically motivated in science. So I try to discuss frequently, especially with the students. I try to tell them that, you know, it's normal. Troubleshooting is absolutely normal and they can't expect that it's going to be like their, you know, maybe their master's classes where they, they went and they had an experiment that was you know, geared to work from the beginning and they go in and it works. Said earlier, most experiments actually, you know, a lot of times they don't give the result you expect or not the perfect result. So so we discuss why that is and, and what their what their next step is. I also like to discuss with people on a yearly basis, sort of, you know, and think about what they've done in the last year, what they want to do in the upcoming year, what are their long-term goals. How can they, how can I help them achieve those goals? How can I help them overcome perhaps problems that they're having in the lab or that they had in the last year? So it's something we try to do once a year, but I'm, you know, I'm always available for people to come in and discuss that whenever they need to. It sounds like a very nice environment, to be honest. <laughs> um, and just lastly, I think with your career and all the things that you have achieved, it will be fair to ask you for advice. What advice would you give to someone who would like to pursue a career like yours? So yeah, I think there are probably two things I would say. One is that I think it's fantastic in our life when we can do a career that we like and we can go to work every day and enjoy what we do. And that's a luxury. So I think if one decides that they want to stay in science and that's something that they like doing, then I think what's really important if you want to pursue a career in academic science or even you know any type of career is to really educate yourself on you know how people that are in a position that you want to be in 
got there. So, you know, this sounds kind of trivial, but I think depending on the lab that you're in and the institute you're in, you may or may not have uh, access to understanding that process. And it's always, you know, you can be very useful to seek out people and say, you know, how did how did you get there? What's important? You know, to learn how to write a CV, how to write cover letters, how to prepare interviews and to get for example, copies of successful grants. You know, some people know how to do this sort of intuitively, and other people, it's a really steep learning curve, and you have to learn how to do it. But I think it's important to invest a little bit and to realize that this is an active process that you have to learn how to do, like anything else in science. Yeah, and it's never ending in research in general. That's true. One always has things to learn. Yeah. Thank you so much for this discussion. I think it was wonderful. Thank you so much for being here with us. You had an excellent presentation and very nice discussion as well. Thank you so much. Thank you.